Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Ominous Origins Podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this episode is still brought to you by the wonderful people over at MorbidlyBeautiful.com. Morbidly Beautiful is your one-stop shop for all things horror content related, from interviews, reviews, top 10 lists, and of course, everything in between. Sorry, this one's a little bit late. Had some stuff going on. I was waiting on a new mic after my old one kind of got blood blood. Uh, yeah, so this is where we are this week, and we're going to be looking at a serial killer by the name of Richard Speck. Serial killer, mass murderer, there is a difference. He is technically classified as a mass murderer, as he did all of his murders in one night, or at least most of them. Though Speck has a notorious history, he may not be quite the same household name as a Ted Bundy or a Jeffrey Dahmer, but we'll look into him anyway, so let's just delve right into the story of Richard Speck. Ominous. Ominous. It is an adjective. Sounds like someone breathing. Ominous. Although Richard Speck may not be a household name, he has a name that still sends shivers down the spines of many. His heinous crimes shook the nation and will forever scar the city of Chicago. Today we will dive deep into the life and crimes of this notorious killer. Richard Speck was born on December 6th, 1941 in Kirkwood, Illinois. Raised in a troubled household, he faced a difficult childhood. At an early age, signs of antisocial behavior began to emerge. Speck was involved in petty crimes and showed signs of aggression, leading to multiple expulsions from schools. As the years went by, Speck's violent tendencies escalated. His criminal activities included theft, assault, and even attempted rape. But these incidents were merely a precursor to the horrifying events that would unfold on the night of July 13, 1966. On that fateful night, Richard Speck committed one of the most shocking and brutal crimes in American history. He broke into a townhouse located at 2319 East 100th Street in Chicago which was being used as a dormitory for students in the nursing college of South Chicago Community Hospital. In a premeditated act of pure, unadulterated evil, Speck systematically terrorized and murdered eight young women. His victims ranging in age from 19 to 24 were tied up, sexually assaulted, and ultimately stabbed or strangled to death. The events of that night were truly horrific and left the nation in disbelief. The investigation that followed was intense and extensive. The sole survivor, Corazon Amaral, played a pivotal role in identifying Speck as the perpetrator. Her bravery and quick thinking allowed the authorities to bring him to justice. In 1967, Speck was convicted and sentenced to death, but his sentence was later changed to life in prison after the Supreme Court ruled the death penalty unconstitutional in 1972. Speck spent the majority of his life behind bars, living out his days in isolation, haunted by the memories of his heinous act. The Richard Speck case had a profound impact on law enforcement, criminal justice, and mental health. It highlighted the importance of a secure institution, stricter background checks, and the need for better support systems for troubled individuals. Even decades after the crime, Richard Speck's name continues to invoke fear and fascination. His story reminds us of the capacity for darkness within humanity and the resilience of those affected by such acts of violence. Following his conviction, Richard Speck was initially held at Stateville Correctional 
Center in Joliet, Illinois. However, his violent and disruptive behavior led to his transfer to a maximum security prison in Chester, Illinois. Speck spent several years there, isolated from other inmates due to the nature of his crimes and his own volatile nature. In the years that followed, Speck's notoriety continued to grow. In 1978, a video recording surfaced showing Speck engaging in drug use and sexual activities with other inmates. The scandalous footage added to the public's fascination with Speck and raised concerns about the conditions within the prison system. Throughout his time in prison, Richard Speck maintained a volatile and unpredictable demeanor. Reports from prison guards and fellow inmates described him as aggressive and prone to outbursts of violence. He often clashed with the prison staff and fellow inmates, further cementing his reputation as a dangerous individual. In an unexpected turn of events in 1996, a fellow inmate named Tommy Lee Rutledge secretly recorded conversations with Speck. These recordings were later released to the public, providing chilling insight into Speck's mindset and his lack of remorse for his crimes. The recordings caused a widespread outrage and reignited the discussion about the nature of justice and the treatment of prisoners. Despite his turbulent behavior, Richard Speck's life came to an end on December 5, 1991 due to a heart attack. He died at the age of 49 in the Joliet Correctional Center's hospital. The news of his death sparked a mix of emotions including relief for some and a sense of closure for the families and the friends of his victims. The legacy of Richard Speck's crimes extends beyond the personal tragedies inflicted upon his victims and their loved ones. The case highlights the vulnerabilities within the healthcare system and the need for stricter security measures in facilities accommodating vulnerable individuals. Now, today, Richard Speck's name remains synonymous with horror and serves as a grim reminder of the capacity for evil that can reside within the human psyche. His crimes continue to be studied by criminologists, psychologists, and those seeking to understand the nature of violence and its impact on society. The heinous acts committed by Richard Speck are far-reaching and have extraordinary consequences, prompting significant changes in healthcare practices and security protocols. In the aftermath of the tragedy, hospitals and medical institutions across the United States implemented stringent safety measures to protect both patients and staff. The Speck case also prompted a reevaluation of the treatment and safety of nurses, especially those working night shifts or in potentially vulnerable environments. The tragedy led to the development protocols and guidelines for ensuring security and the well-being of healthcare workers. Moreover, the Speck case served as a wake-up call for law enforcement agencies, highlighting the importance of effective communication and cooperation among various departments during investigations. The intense manhunt and subsequent capture of Speck showcased the need for seamless coordination among law enforcement agencies to bring dangerous criminals to justice. From a legal standpoint, the Richard Speck case played a significant role in shaping the criminal justice practices. His trial and conviction brought attention to the need for fair and thorough legal proceedings, ensuring that even the most notorious criminals receive due process. Additionally, Speck's crimes contributed to the discussion surrounding the death penalty and its application. His initial death sentence, later commuted to life in prison, sparked debates about the effectiveness and morality of capital punishment. The Richard Speck case remains a pivotal moment in true crime history, forever etching his name into the annals of infamy. It serves as a haunting reminder that evil can lurk in the most unexpected places, forever impacting the lives 
of innocent victims and their communities. So now that we have the rundown of Richard Speck and what he did, well, let's just look in to his history, his past, his childhood, and the events leading up to the heinous crimes that he committed on that fateful day in 1966. As we discussed, Richard was born in Kirkwood, Illinois in 1941 and was the seventh of eight children of Benjamin Franklin Speck and Mary Margaret Carbaugh. The family moved to Monmouth, Illinois shortly after Speck's birth. He and his sister Caroline were much younger than their four older sisters and two older brothers. His mother was religious and a teetotaler, which is a new word to me, but apparently it means somebody who just abstains from alcohol or other intoxicating substances. His father worked as a packer at Western Stoneware in Monmouth, having previously worked as a farmer and logger. In 1947, when Speck was six years old, his father died from a heart attack at the age of 53, so something runs in the family. Speck was reportedly very close to his father. On May 10th, 1953, years after the death of his father, his mother Mary married Carl August Rudolph Lindbergh in Paolo Pinto, Texas. She and Lindbergh had met during a train ride to Chicago. Lindbergh was a traveling insurance salesman from Texas with a 25-year criminal record that ranged from forgery to several DUIs. Lindbergh was also a hard drinker, unlike Speck's father. Speck and his sister Caroline stayed with their married sister Sarah in Monmouth for a few months so Speck could finish second grade, before joining their mother and Lindbergh in rural Santo, Texas, 40 miles west of Fort Worth, Texas. In 1952, Speck's eldest brother Robert died in a car accident at the age of 23. A lot of tragedy in this young guy's life already, but that does not excuse his acts. But it is something to look into, as a lot of serial killers have a very rough childhood. In 1951, after a year in Santo, Speck moved in with his mother, Lindbergh, and his sister Caroline to East Dallas. The family moved frequently, living at 10 different addresses, usually in poor neighborhoods, over the next 12 years. Speck loathed his stepfather, who was often drunk, verbally abusive, and frequently absent. Speck struggled in school, refusing to wear the glasses that he needed for reading. He repeated the 8th grade at J. L. Long Jr. High School, in part because of his fear of people staring at him and his subsequent refusal to speak in class. In autumn of 1957, Speck started the ninth grade, but failed every single subject. Speck did not return for the second semester, dropping out of school in January of 1958 after his 16th birthday. Having started drinking alcohol by the age of 12, by age 15 he was getting drunk most every day. His first arrest in 1955 at age 13 for trespassing was followed by dozens of other arrests for misdemeanors over the next eight years. From 1960 to 1963, Speck worked as a laborer for the 7-Up Bottling Company in Dallas. In October of 1961, Speck met 15-year-old Shirley Annette Malone at the Texas State Fair. She became pregnant three weeks after dating. The couple married on January 19, 1962 and initially moved in with his sister Caroline and her husband. Speck's mother lived there as well, having separated from Lindbergh, who is now living in California. Speck stopped using the name Richard Benjamin Lindbergh when he got married and went back to using Richard Benjamin Speck. His daughter, Robbie Lynn Speck, was born on July 5, 1962. While Speck was serving a 22-day jail sentence for disturbing the peace after a drunken melee in McKinney, Texas. 
In July 1963, at the age of 21, Speck was sentenced to serve three years in prison after being convicted of forgery and burglary. So it looks like Lindbergh talked about a thing or two. Speck had forged and cashed a co-worker's $44 paycheck and also robbed a grocery store for cigarettes, beer, and three bucks in cash. He was paroled in 1965 after serving 16 months at Texas State Penitentiary in Huntsville, Texas. His release lasted a week. Speck was arrested again on January 9, 1965. Speck attacked a woman in the parking lot of her apartment building, wielding a 17-inch carving knife, but fled when the woman screamed. The police arrived within minutes and apprehended Speck a few blocks away. Speck was convicted of aggravated assault and given a 16-month sentence to run concurrently with parole violations and various other misdemeanors. However, due to an error, he was released just six months later upon the completion of his parole violation sentence on July 2, 1965. After his release, Specht worked for three months as a driver for the Patterson Meat Company. Although he had six accidents in the company truck, he was fired for failing to show up for work. In December of 1965, upon the recommendation of his mother, Specht moved in with a 29-year-old divorce woman, an ex-professional wrestler, and now bartender at his favorite bar, Ginny's Lounge to babysit her three children, which sounds like a great idea. In January of 66, Malone, who had been separated from Speck, filed for divorce. That same month, Speck stabbed a man in a knife fight at Ginny's Lounge. He was once again charged with aggravated assault, but a defense attorney hired by his mother got the charges reduced to disturbing the peace. Speck was fined a whopping $10 and jailed for three days after he failed to pay the fine. This was the last time Speck was in police custody in Dallas. On March 5, 1966, Speck bought a 12-year-old car and then robbed a grocery store the following evening, stealing 70 cartons of cigarettes, which he then sold out of the trunk of the car in the grocery store's parking lot. The police traced the car, which Speck had abandoned, and issued a warrant for his arrest for burglary on March 8th. Had he been apprehended under that warrant, it would have been his 42nd arrest in Dallas and would have surely resulted in another prison term. On March 9, 1966, Speck's sister, Caroline, drove him to the Dallas bus depot where he took a bus to Chicago, Illinois. Speck stayed with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago for a few days and then returned to his boyhood hometown of Monmouth, Illinois, where he initially stayed with some old family friends. Speck's brother Howard was a carpenter in Monmouth and found a job for him sanding plasterboard for another Monmouth carpenter. Speck became angry when he learned his ex-wife had remarried two days after he was granted a divorce on March 16, 1966. He moved to the Christie Hotel in downtown Monmouth on March 25th and spent most of his time in downtown taverns. At the end of March, while Speck and some acquaintances were on a bar hopping trip to Gulfport, Illinois, they were detained overnight by police. Thereafter, Speck reportedly threatened a man in a tavern restroom with his knife. On April 3rd, Miss Virgil Harris, a 65-year-old resident of Monmouth, returned home at 1 a.m. to find a burglar in her house brandishing a knife. He was a six-foot-tall white man who was, quote, very polite and spoke with a very soft southern drawl. The man blindfolded her, tied her up, raped her, ransacked her house, and stole $2.50 she had earned babysitting that evening. A week later, Mary Catherine Pierce, a 32-year-old barmaid who worked at her brother-in-law's tavern, Frank's Place, in downtown Monmouth, was last seen leaving the tavern at 12.20 a.m. On April 9th, she was reported missing, and on April 13th, her body was found. 
She had died from a blow to the abdomen that ruptured her liver. Speck had frequented Frank's place, and the empty hog house where the body was found was one of the several he had helped build in the preceding months. So Monmouth police briefly questioned him about Pierce's death when he showed up to collect his final carpentry paycheck on April 15th and asked him to stay in town for further questioning. When police showed up at Christie Hotel on April 19th to continue questioning Speck, they discovered he had left the hotel a few hours earlier carrying his suitcase and saying he was just going to the laundromat. He had instead left town. A search of his room turned up a radio and costume jewelry Miss Virgil Harris had reported missing from her house, as well as items reported missing in two other local burglaries in the previous month. On April 19, 1966, Speck returned to stay at his sister Martha's second floor apartment at 3966 North Avondale Avenue in the Old Irving Park neighborhood on the northwest side of Chicago where she lived with her husband, Jean, and their two teenage daughters as well. Martha had worked as a registered nurse in pediatrics before she was married, and her husband Jean worked nights as a railroad switchman. Speck told them an unbelievable story about having to leave Monmouth after refusing to sell narcotics for a quote-unquote crime syndicate there. Jean, who had served in the U.S. Navy, thought that the U.S. Merchant Marine might provide a suitable occupation for his unemployed brother-in-law. So on April 25th, he took Speck to the U.S. Coast Guard office to apply for a letter of authority to work as an apprentice seaman. The application required being fingerprinted and photographed and having a physical examination done by a doctor. Speck found work immediately after obtaining the letter of authority, joining the 33-member crew of the Endland Steel Clearance B Randall, an L6SB1 class bulk ore lake freighter, on April 30th. Speck's first voyage on the Clarence B. Randall was brief, since he was stricken with appendicitis on May 3rd and was evacuated by the U.S. Coast Guard helicopter to St. Joseph's Hospital in Hancock, Michigan. While there, he had an emergency appendectomy. After he was discharged from the hospital, Speck returned to stay with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago to recuperate. On May 20th, he rejoined the crew of the Clarence B. Randall, on which he served until June 14th, when he got drunk and quarreled with one of the boat's officers and was put ashore on June 15th. For the following week, Speck stayed at the St. Elmo and East Side Chicago Flophouse at East 99th Street and South Ewing Avenue. Speck then traveled by train to Houghton, Michigan, staying at the Douglas House to visit Judy Lacanemi, who was a 28-year-old nurse's aide going through a divorce whom he had befriended at St. Joseph's Hospital. On June 27th, after Judy gave him $80 to help him until he found work, Speck left again to stay with his sister Martha and her family in Chicago for the next two weeks. On June 30th, Speck's brother-in-law, Jean, drove him to the National Maritime Union Hiring Hall at 2335 East 100th Street in the Jeffrey Manor neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago to file his paperwork for a Siemens card. The NMU hiring hall was one block east of five attached two-story brick houses, three of which were occupied by the Chicago Community Hospital senior student nurses. It also housed Filipino exchanged registered nurses. Eight of these nurses lived in the easternmost townhouse just 150 feet away from the NMU hiring hall. On Friday, July 8, 1966, Speck's brother-in-law, Gene, drove him to the NMU hiring hall to pick up his Siemens card and register for a berth on a ship. Speck lost out that day to a seaman with more seniority for a berth on the SS Flying Spray. 
which was a cargo ship bound for South Vietnam. So in turn, he returned to his sister's apartment for the weekend. By Monday, July 11th, Speck had outstayed his welcome with his sister and her family. After packing his bags and, again, being driven by his brother-in-law to the NMU hiring hall to await a berth on a ship, Speck stayed the night at Pauline's rooming house, about one mile away, in the Vets Park neighborhood of South Deering, Chicago. On Tuesday, July 12th, Speck returned to the NMU hiring hall. In the mid-afternoon, he received an assignment on Sinclair's oil tanker, SS Sinclair Great Lakes, which was 30 minutes away in East Chicago, Indiana. When he arrived there, he found his spot had already been taken, and he was driven back to the NMU hiring hall, which was then closed. Speck did not have enough money for a rooming house, so he dropped his bags off six blocks east of the Manor Shell filling station and slept in an unfinished house just off of East 103rd Street. On Wednesday, July 13th, Speck picked up his bags and checked in at the NMU hiring hall. He was angry for being sent to a non-existent assignment and he talked for 30 minutes in the car with his sister Martha and her husband Jean who had driven to visit him at 9am. They parked on East 100th Street next to Luella Elementary School across the street from the townhouses where the nurses lived. At 10.30am, he was tired of waiting for the NMU hiring hall job, so Speck had $25 his sister had given him and left and walked about 1.5 miles to check in at the Shipyard Inn, which was an east side Chicago rooming house. Speck spent the rest of the day drinking at nearby taverns before he accosted Ella Mae Hooper at Knife Point. She was a 53-year-old woman who had spent the day drinking at the same tavern that Speck had patronized. Speck took her to his room at the Shipyard Inn, raped her and stole her black $16 mail order, a 22 caliber Rome pistol and then he left, dressed entirely in black, armed with a switchblade and Ella Mae Hooper's handgun. After dinner at a nearby Kay's pilot house, Speck returned to drink at the Shipyard Inn's tavern until 10.20pm, and he walked about 1.5 miles west on East 100th Street to the nurse's house at 2319 East 100th Street. At 11pm on July 13, 1966, Speck broke into that townhouse in Chicago's Jeffrey Manor neighborhood. The townhouse was functioning as a dormitory for student nurses. He entered and, using only a knife, killed Gloria Davy, Patricia Matsuik, Nina Jo Schmael, Pamela Wilkening, Suzanne Ferris, Mary Ann Jordan, Merlita Garuel, and Valentina Passion. Speck, who later claimed he was drunk and high on drugs, may have originally planned to commit a routine burglary. Speck held the women in a room for hours, leading them out one by one, stabbing or strangling them to death, then finally raping and strangling his last victim, who was 22-year-old Gloria Davy. Intervals of 20 to 30 minutes elapsed between each murder. One woman, Corazan, Amarau escaped death because she crawled and hid under a bed while Speck was out of the room. Speck possibly lost count or might have known eight women lived in the townhouse but was unaware that a ninth woman was spending the night. Amarau stayed hidden until almost 6am. Fingerprints at the scene were matched to Speck. Two days after the murder, Speck was identified by a drifter named Cloud Lunsford. Speck, Lunsford, and another man had been drinking that evening of July 15th on the fire escape of the Star Hotel. On July 16th, Lunsford recognized a sketch of the murderer in the evening paper and phoned the police at 9.30pm after finding Speck in his Lunsford's room at the Star Hotel. 
The police, however, did not respond to the call, although the records show the call had been made. Speck then attempted suicide, and the Star Hotel desk clerk phoned in the emergency around midnight. Speck was taken to Cook County Hospital at 12.30 a.m. on July 17th. At the hospital, Speck was recognized by Dr. Leroy Smith, a 25-year-old surgeon, resident physician who had read about the Born to Raise Hell tattoo in a newspaper. The police were called and Speck was finally arrested. So that's the story of Richard Speck. I could go into the trial and all that, and maybe I will next week. But for now, we're going to call it there. We covered a lot today, and Richard Speck is a fascinating case of terror, evil, and what a fucked up childhood can do to a person. Of course, there are no excuses for what he did. No matter what happened to him as a child, there is no need for him to do what he did as an adult. However, it is a fascinating look at nature versus nurture. But that's all I have for you this week. My name is Casey. If you like what you heard, please feel free to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Music or a five-star rating on Spotify. Any five-star reviews or ratings will get read out or shouted out on the show. I'd say follow along on social media, but I don't really use it anymore. I just can't stand seeing people being happy. No, that's not it. Well, that's partly it, to be honest. But I just don't have the desire to share my life on social media. So, you know what? If you want to reach out, shoot me an email at ominousoriginspodcast at gmail.com. Other than that, I hope you have a good day. And until next time.